Hello, James Kenny here, and welcome to my podcast, Land of the Golden Sunset, the evolution of the Irish from biblical times. This is episode number eight, entitled The Plantation of Ulster and the Flight of the Earls. In the year 1602, Elizabeth I died after reigning for 40 years, leaving Ireland at the hour of her death, one vast slaughterhouse. When James I succeeded Elizabeth, he found Ireland almost a wilderness. Sir Arthur Chichester, the agent of the English king, developed one of the most extraordinary schemes that was ever heard of in the relations between one country and another. They took the province of Ulster and cleared out the whole Irish population and handed it over boldly to settlers from England and Scotland. This was called the Plantation of Ulster. The leaders of the rebellion, on the other hand, received good terms from the new king of England, James I, in the hope of ensuring a final end of the draining war that had brought England close to bankruptcy. O'Neill O'Donnell and the other surviving Ulster chiefs were granted full pardons and the return of their estates. The stipulations were that they abandoned their Irish titles, their private armies and their control over their dependents, and that they swear loyalty only to the Crown of England. In 1604, Mountjoy, declared an amnesty for rebels all over the country. The reason for this apparent mildness was that the English could not afford to continue the war any longer. Elizabethan England did not have a standing army, nor could it force its parliament to pass enough taxation to pay for long wars. Moreover, it was already involved in a war in the Spanish Netherlands, as it was The war in Ireland, which cost over two million, came very close to bankrupting the English exchequer by its close in 1603. Irish sources claimed that as many as 60,000 people had died in the Ulster famine of 1602 and 1603 alone. An Irish death toll of over 100,000 is possible. At least 30,000 English soldiers died in Ireland in the Nine Years' War, mainly from disease. So the total death toll for the war was certainly at least 130,000 people, and probably more. Although O'Neill and his allies received good terms at the end of the war, they were never trusted by the English authorities, and the distrust was mutual. O'Neill, O'Donnell, and the other Gaelic lords from Ulster left Ireland in 1607 in what is known as the Flight of the Earls. The Earls set sail from Rathmullen, a village on the shore of Loch Swilly in County Donegal, accompanied by their followers, many of them Ulster noblemen, and some members of their families. They intended to organise an expedition from a Catholic power in Europe, preferably Spain, to restart the war, but were unable to find any military backers. During the plantation of Ulster, the English crown gave the Protestant Archbishop of Armagh 
43,000 acres of the best land in Ireland. They gave to Trinity College, Dublin, 30,000 acres. They gave to the Skinners, Dry Salters and Cordwainers, Corporations and Trades of London, 208,000 acres. They brought over colonies of Scotch Presbyterians and English Protestants and gave them lots of 1,000 and 1,500 and 2,000 acres of land, making them swear as a condition that they would not employ one Irish Catholic or let them come near the property. Thus, millions of acres of the finest land were confiscated at one blow from the Irish people, and they were evicted from their own land. The flight of the earls had happened in September 1607, when an illustrious party of 50 people embarked on a French ship and sailed direct to Normandy. They moved on from France and were received with marked honours in the Netherlands. But it was in Rome where the fugitives were best received, when they were welcomed by Pope Pius V. In conjunction with the King of Spain, he assigned to them a liberal annual pension for their support. Their intention was always to raise an army and oust English authority in their home province. But the territories they had left behind were soon divided up in the plantation of Ulster, and they were never able to return. These exiles longed for their homeland and were depressed living in a foreign land, and one by one they were laid to rest without ever returning home. Rory O'Donnell, Earl of Tyrconnell, died on the 28th of July 1608 and his brother Cathbar O'Donnell died in the following September. Maguire died in Genoa on his way to Spain on the 12th of August 1608. Hugh O'Neill, son of the O'Neill, Baron of Dungannon, at the age of 24, died on the 23rd of September 1609. Thus, in a short space of two years, Hugh O'Neill the ageing prince of Ulster, found himself almost the last of the illustrious earls still living. But on the 20th of July 1616, O'Neill died in Rome, where the Pope celebrated his funeral rites on a grand scale, befitting royalty. He was buried in San Pietro di Montorio. His sons Con, Henry and Shane survived him. But further tragedy struck when Con was found strangled in bed in Brussels. This was believed to be the work of English agents, fearing, if he lived, he could be a danger to them yet in Ireland. Shane Nile, he called himself, the third Earl of Tyrone, had entered the Spanish army and was called El Condo de Tyrone and was killed in Catalonia in 1641. Henry O'Neill became a colonel of an Irish regiment in the Archduke's army. The Archduke, Cardinal Infante Ferdinand, was governor of the Spanish Netherlands, Cardinal of the Holy Catholic Church, Infante of Spain, Infante of Portugal, Archduke of Austria, Archbishop of Toledo, and military commander during the Thirty Years' War. There remains now but a trace of the last of O'Neill's illustrious companions in arms. The special vengeance of England marked Donald O'Sullivan Bear 
for a fatal distinction among his fellow chiefs. He was not included in the amnesty of Melifont. We may be sure that it was a sore thought for O'Neill that he did not obtain for his friend, so tried and true as O'Sullivan Bear, some participation in the terms granted to himself and the other northern chiefs in that Melifont treaty. The northern chiefs retained some power, but the English had no fear of the southern chiefs, so there was no pardon granted to O'Sullivan Bear. The very next year O'Sullivan Bear accompanied O'Neill to London. It was the year following the accession of James to the throne. But no relaxation of the policy or the degree against him was forthcoming. They returned home extremely disappointed. O'Sullivan Bear assembled all that remained of his family and relatives and set out for Spain. He arrived in the year 1604 and was welcomed and received with high honour by King Philippe III, who created him a grandee of Spain, knight of the military order of St. Lego, and subsequently Earl of Bearhaven. Moreover, the king assigned to him a monthly pension of 300 pieces of gold. Unfortunately, however, tragedy was lurking when his son Donal had a quarrel with a young Anglo-Irish man named John Bath. Bath drew his sword and swore some insults at the O'Sullivans. Friends intervened and separated the young hotheads. Suddenly, Bath attacked the aged O'Sullivan bear from behind and stabbed him to death, thus sadly ending the life of O'Sullivan bear, aged 57 years. Years previously, his father was killed in 1563, but Donal was considered too young to inherit and the clan leadership passed to the chief's surviving brother, Owen, who was confirmed by English authorities in Dublin with the title Lord of Bear and Bantry. To consolidate his position, Owen accepted the authority of Queen Elizabeth I of England and was knighted, thus becoming Sir Owen. In 1587, at the age of 26, Donal asserted his own claim to the leadership of the clan, petitioning Dublin Castle to put aside Sir Owen's appointment with a claim derived from English laws, based on absolute male primogeniture. These laws did not recognise age as relevant to inheritance rights. Keen to extend English legal authority over Ireland, the Dublin Commission accepted Donal's claim he then became the O'Sullivan Bear, head of the clan. The O'Sullivan Bear enjoyed a wide reputation, which helped to open doors for later soldiers from his line. About 165 years later, John Sullivan, regarded as a descendant of O'Sullivan Bear, served as a general in the American Revolution. During his plundering and colonising King James I died in 1625. He was succeeded by his son, whom the Catholics now looked to for justice, tolerance and protection. This new king, Charles I, and his ministers secretly encouraged these expectations, which, unfortunately, never materialised. Francois Quesney 
1694 to 1774, said that agriculture was special. Nature harnessed in the fields, rivers and hunting grounds was the ultimate source of a nation's wealth. This is why the ideas of his circle of thinkers, the first to call themselves economists, came to be known as physiocracy, meaning ruled by nature. The physiocrats said that wealth was the wheat and pigs produced by the land. Farmers used their crops or their earnings from selling them to feed themselves. In addition, they sometimes produce a surplus that can be sold to other people. Quesney believed that the surplus was the life force of the economy. He called it the net product. It was what was left over from farming production after the farmers had taken what they needed. He said that the net product could only be produced by people alongside nature, by the fisherman making a catch in the river, by the shepherd grazing sheep in the grasslands. When Charles I came to the throne, he brought with him the most exaggerated ideas of royal privileges and supremacy, says historian T.N. Burke, writing in 1873. The direction which Protestants took in Scotland was the hard, uncompromising form of Calvinism, in its most repellent aspect. The men who rose in Scotland, in defence of their Presbyterian religion rose not against Catholics, but against the Episcopalian Protestants of England. They defended what they called their Kirk or Covenant. They fought bravely, and they succeeded by establishing it as the religion of Scotland. Charles I was an Episcopalian of the most sincere and devoted kind. The English Parliament, however, admitted members who were very strongly tainted with Scotch Calvinism, and they showed a refractory spirit to their king. He asserted certain sovereign rights, and they denied them. Charles was in want of money, and his parliament refused to grant it. Accordingly, Henry Carey, 1st Viscount Falkland, Lord Deputy of Ireland from 1622 until 1629, he hinted to the Catholics and proposed to them that as they were under the most terrifying penal laws from the days of the monarchs Elizabeth I and James I, they should now petition the new king and might be granted new concessions. When their petitions went before the king, he declared his intention to grant to the Catholics of Ireland certain graces. But no sooner did the newly founded Puritan element hear this they instantly rose and protested that it should not be so. Charles, to his eternal disgrace, broke his word to the Catholics of Ireland. After they had sent him £120,000 in acknowledgement of his bounty, it was now decided that Lord Falkland was too mild and just a man to be allowed to remain on as Lord Deputy and on the 10th of August 1629 he was directed to hand over his authority to the Lord's Justices on the pretext that his services were required at home in England. Previously, Falkland had convened an assembly 
of the nobility of Ireland on the 22nd of September 1626 on account of the difficulties of maintaining the English army in Ireland. He laid before the assembly a draft of concessions promised by Charles, which were subsequently known as the Graces. They promised the removal of certain religious disabilities and the recognition of 60 years' possession as a bar to all claims of the crown based on irregularities of title. Falkland did not conduct the negotiations with skill, and for a long time there seemed no hope of a satisfactory settlement. Finally, in May 1628, a deputation from the nobility agreed, before the King and Privy Council at Whitehall, on certain additional concessions in the Graces, and then confirmed that Ireland should provide a sum of £4,000 per annum for the army for three years. Lord Falkland was replaced by Thomas Wentworth, 1st Earl of Strafford, on the 12th of January 1632. On his arrival, Strafford summoned a parliament. He assured the Irish that the king still intended to keep his word to grant the graces. Then came the usual demand for money, and the Irish parliament granted him subsidies of £50,000. Strafford was congratulated by the king, who confessed that he only expected to get subsidies of £30,000. The following year, Strafford brazenly told them that he regretted that the royal promise was not yet forthcoming and introduced what he called the Commission of Defective Titles, with the express and avowed purpose of finding a flaw in the titles so that he could confiscate them to the Crown of England. The whole of Ulster was confiscated by James I. He also took Longford from the O'Farrells, who owned it from time immemorial, and Wicklow was seized from the O'Tools and O'Burns, and the northern part of County Wexford from the O'Cavanaghs, and County Offaly from the O'Malloys. Strafford's intention now was to take the whole province of Connacht, root out the native Irish population, expel every man and his family who owned an acre of land in the province, and reduce them to beggary, starvation, and death. The English historian Leyland says, His project was nothing less than to subvert the title of every estate in every part of Connacht. Accordingly, he began in the county Roscommon, moved on to Sligo, and then Mayo and Galway. A title could only be upset if a jury agreed its validity, but Strafford began packing his jury to be a perjured jury, for the king. Strafford succeeded even further with his criminal scheme when he told the jury before each trial that he expected every man to do his duty for the king. Between threats and bribery, he got the result he wanted. That is, except in County Galway, where twelve jurors could not be bribed to confiscate the property belonging to their own neighbour. Strafford was furious and fined the sheriff £1,000 for summoning such a jury and cited the jurymen to the castle chamber to answer for their offence. They were fined and thrown in jail until the fine was paid. One of the jurors, not being wealthy, was unable to pay the fine and was left in jail where he eventually died. Strafford's next diabolical plan was to notify all judges that he would add four shillings on the pound to their wages for the value of every property confiscated to the English crown. Next, he enforced 
the Court of Wards and Liveries, which was a court established during the reign of Henry VIII in England. Its purpose was to administer a system of feudal Jews, but as well as the revenues collected. The court was also responsible for wardship and livery issues. From 1561, the court was responsible for the upbringing of orphaned heirs to peerages and also until they came of age for the administration of their estates. This was a cunning and cruel plan which took the heirs of Irish Catholic peers and forced them to be brought up in the Protestant religion and took the income from the estate until the heir came of age. There were no tears in the land of the golden sunset when Strafford returned to England. But his woes only started then. The English Parliament was in rebellion, and he was impeached for high misdemeanours regarding his conduct in Ireland. But however tyrannical his conduct may have been, his offence was outside the definition of high treason. Strafford had served Charles I with what the king felt was a high degree of loyalty, and Charles had a serious problem with signing his death warrant, as he had explicitly promised Strafford that no matter what happened, he would not die. Soon afterwards, Strafford met his fate on Tower Hill, receiving the blessing of Archbishop Laud, and he was executed on the 12th of May, 1641. Strafford, in his time, the most powerful figure in Ireland, was responsible for the construction of Jigginstown Castle. His intention was for the castle to be a place where the king could reside on royal visits to Ireland. His downfall and the execution for treason in 1641 meant that the house was never completed and it was largely destroyed during the civil strife of the 1640s. Because the English Parliament and the Puritans were in rebellion, the unfortunate King Charles I was not free to grant anything or keep promises to the beleaguered Irish. Rulers and their governments worked with merchants by protecting them from imported goods and helping them to get rich by exporting their own goods. Mercantilists argued that what was good for the merchants was good for the nation. And so we see how economic thinking can end up favouring certain privileged groups in society. By restricting imports, mercantilism favoured business people over workers. When imports are taxed, the country's businesses make more money, but ordinary people end up paying more for essentials, like food and clothes that they need. This is the main reason why later thinkers thought the mercantilists were wrong. Adam Smith, 1723 to 1790, for instance, thought that the task of economists was to uncover objective laws on how the economy worked, and he thought the mercantilists failed to do this because they mainly argued for their own interests. Adam Smith, who is considered by some to be the father of modern economics, said, what was good for merchants wasn't always good for the nation. Don't forget, you can become a patron of this podcast by going to podbean.com. In any case, continue to follow and like. Like.